If you can, please stand for the reading of scripture. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. I believe. I believe. I enlist. I believe in God. Fight Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He descended to hell. The third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe. I believe. I, I, I believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Father Church. You can win saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. 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 Uh, so I threw out my back sledding yesterday, so I, um, if you see me moving slowly, and that's why I'm standing in the back, that's, that's why. So, um, season three in the Star Wars show, the, Mandal show, the Mandalorian, it opens with this scene of this sect called the Mandalorian who are standing along a lakeside to witness as the spiritual leader, the armorer, <clears throat> stands with a young boy who takes a detailed pledge in order to be initiated into the way. So the way for the Mandalorian is this religious oath. It's a creed. And its tenets include things like never taking off one's helmet and swearing to protect Mandalorian youth. It's more than just a belief. It's a pledge. It's a commitment that then informs the rest of that person's Life And the main character in the show, Din Djarin, who's Mandalorian, he's, he's a compelling character, I think, because among kind of a cast of characters who often are kind of petty, 
maybe unreliable and selfish, Din Djarin lives a life with a sense of purpose. He lives by the way, by this ancient creed. After the boy in the scene swears adherence to the way, the spiritual leader then scoops up some water from the lake and prepares to pour it on the boy's head. And of course, when I saw this scene, it's probably been a couple years, I was like, oh, this is, this is baptism. This is Christianity all over. It's a congregation standing around as a spiritual leader. Has, there's an ancient creed. There's initiation by water. And I found it to actually be a very powerful scene. Not because of the creed of the Mandalorian, which is, is frankly kind of silly. The, the baptism of the boy actually gets cut short because this giant sea creature emerges and the Mandalorian have to fight him, right? So it quickly moves away from kind of a baptism. But I think what was moving to me is that it takes sometimes a silly show to give a fresh perspective on the power and seriousness of creed, of a pledge, of our own initiation at baptism into the way of Jesus Christ. And so today we begin a new sermon series that will take us through Lent and into Easter on the Apostles' Creed. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which simply means I believe. That's the first two words of the Apostles' Creed. And I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about creeds. I have some guesses. For, for maybe a small minority of you, creeds bring back memories of being maybe a kid and saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You know, as people are kind of nodding off to sleep as they recite this creed. Um, it's just this thing you do every week. For some of you, maybe even a smaller percentage, it brings back memories of a 1990s rock band named Creed. Probably a smaller. Yeah, not got to get his shaking head. For most of us, though, probably creeds don't conjure up much at all, right? They didn't. If you were like me, I grew up in a tradition where to say we were skeptical of the creeds would be an understatement, I think. We were very suspicious of the creeds. Um, so I can relate to both these, though, uh, maybe less so the band creed, but, but standing and doing the pledge, because I've also been part of churches where we did the creed most weeks, and it did feel like we were just kind of going through the motions of this kind of thing. And what really, for me personally, brought the Apostles' Creed to life was actually hearing Rich Mullins sing it. I don't know if anybody knows, I put a link to it in the newsletter this week. Uh, this is really how I learned the creed. It's still hard for me today. Like when I start to recite the Apostles' Creed, Rich Mullins just kind of takes over in my head, which is not a bad thing, but it's, it's so intertwined in my mind, the two. Um, you've been given a copy of the Apostles' Creed when you came in this morning. My hope is, is that you'll think about learning it if you don't know it. You'll think about memorizing it. Not so that we can stand up and kind of recite it and go through the words. I would love to see these words etched and burned on your heart. That they become your creed. The thing that gives you purpose. The thing that guides your life. See, the reality is, is that we all live by and are shaped by creeds, whether we acknowledge it or not. A creed is just a concise statement that expresses the shared belief of a community. And creeds are not something we just say, they do something to us. Let me give you a kind of minor example of the power of creed. I, I grew up in a house where I heard 
American cars are not reliable. Okay? Now don't, before you get mad at me, I'm not making a value statement on American-made cars. I'm not saying we shouldn't buy American-made cars. I'm just saying that this is the message I got growing up. And for better or for worse, the creed worked its way into my heart. Like the creed has informed the way I've purchased cars over this year. Even to this day, if I'm looking to buy a, a new used car, I kind of hear the creed in me that you can't trust American-made cars. I think it's the same for my siblings. Like I don't think any, either of them have ever purchased an American-made car. And my point is, again, not to make a statement about American-made cars. I know I'm going to hear about this at the end. At the end. My point is creeds are powerful. They take something and they put it in short, concise language, and they work their way into our hearts. They begin to shape us, our goals, our ambitions, our hopes, our dreams. I am, can guarantee you have creeds you picked up in your family. Right? You could probably think about some concise statements. We never borrow money. We never spend money we don't have. Whatever creeds you heard growing up work their way into your life. Uh, we also have creeds in our culture. Our culture gives us little concise messages that give us direction, and they tend to kind of echo the values of our culture. They tend to be pretty individualized. But what's cool about the Apostles' Creed is it's very different than any kind of creed you're going to hear today. Ben Myers, in his book on the Apostles' Creeds, he says saying the Apostles' Creed is a really countercultural act because we live in a culture that one prizes originality and is suspicious of the past. So when you recite the Apostles' Creed, you're, not, you're definitely not saying something original, and you're saying something very, very ancient, ancient words, right? You're not coming up with on the fly kind of how you understand God to be. You're not giving your distinctive view about who God is that maybe reflects your personality or your interest or whatever is happening in culture. When you begin the Apostles' Creed, you begin the word with I, but it quickly moves away from you as you join your voice in the communal voice that is called out from the centuries from every tribe and tongue. It's a community that transcends borders, time, and place. There's communities of faith all over the world right now who are reciting the Apostles' Creed. It links us with something much bigger than ourselves, not just now, but thousands of years in the past. When we join in the creed, we join in something way, way bigger than us, way, way bigger than Midway or our little tribe of, of, of Christianity. Well, part of what makes the Apostles' Creed so powerful is very concise. You've got just over about 100 words. It's, in other words, it's portable. You can carry it with you. You can remember it. And within that portable story are all, all these essentials of the Christian faith. So we'll, we'll, we'll go through it as we go through the series. But we've got... Uh, We've got the Trinity showing up. If you can look on your paper, you can see it begins with God the Father, it moves to Jesus the Son, and then we end with the Holy Spirit. So we have this Trinitarian form to the creed. Creation, it begins with God the Father creates. We've got crucifixion. We've got the virgin birth. We've got resurrection. We've got the everlasting life to come. We've got judgment. Right? But you have, more, you have more than just a few doctrinal points. You have the outline of a story and it's a really, really good story. It's a story about a God who creates all there is, heaven and earth, who then leaps down into that creation in the person of his son Jesus to usher in a new kingdom, only to be crucified by his own creature, dead, buried, 
But in the ultimate twist of the story, rises triumphantly from the grave, destroying death, saving creation from sin, and ushering in a new creation. Like, this is the creed that's worth giving your life to. So where did the Apostles' Creed come from? If you look in your Bible, you will find nowhere the formulation of the creed like this. According to the legend, like about 10 days after uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven, each of the apostles wrote one line of the Apostles' Creed, uh, and that's how we got it, which is, we, we know for sure that's definitely not, not true. There's no evidence for that. In reality, the, the Apostles' Creed emerged from probably Rome in the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, as an early statement of faith that people used uh, at their baptism. So again, remember, this is one of the most concise and oldest expressions of belief we have as followers of Jesus. And, uh, and you've, probably heard about, you've probably heard about other creeds, the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, uh, Chalcedon Creed. There's other creeds. This one's a little different. It might be a little bit easier for, for those Mennonites and people like us to handle because it didn't come from a, a, an ecumenical council. It didn't come with a bunch of church leaders getting together to kind of hammer out doctrine. The Apostles' Creed very much is a grassroots creed. It, it emerged. There wasn't anybody that got together to put together. It emerged as a grassroots confession of faith. It, it eventually was, was formalized, but the genetics and the backbone of the creed are way before the councils. So as Christianity, a little history here, as Christianity began to spread, we started to read about this in the, the book of Acts. Uh, think about who was there at Pentecost uh, when we have this, this mass baptism. Peter, um, he preaches this, this powerful speech, and then thousands of people uh, right after Pentecost turn to, to Jesus in faith and are baptized, right? Those are Jewish people, meaning they know the backstory. They know about a creator God who created the heavens and the earth. That's not new. They would have known about a Messiah that they were anticipating, that they were waiting for. They knew the backstory. It wasn't really so much a conversion. They weren't conversion. They were just acknowledging, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. That's, that's different. But now, as, as Christianity over time begins to move out of this Jewish world into the Gentile world, into the pagan world, these people don't know the backstory. Right? They don't know necessarily about a creator God in the book of Genesis uh, who creates. They don't know about a Messiah. They're not waiting for a Messiah. And so they have to, as they begin to, 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 to share with these people, they have to tell them more. They have to begin to do instructional classes. And over time, congregations began to have instructional classes um, to prepare people for baptism. They would last up to three years and they would climax with a confession of faith and baptism on Easter Eve, followed by Eucharist on Easter Day. And the confession, this is why I'm telling you this, the confession that these converts would make were the words of the Apostles' Creed. So uh, Ben Myers, again, gives a description, I want to kind of go over this, of what baptism would have looked like in the early 3rd century. So it's the eve of Easter Sunday. And these believers had stayed up all night in this vigil prayer, reading scripture and instruction. And now they're preparing for the most important moment of their life. They've been preparing for this moment for literally years. Rooster crows, they're led out into a flowing water, pool of water, where they renounce Satan and are anointed from head to foot with oil. They are then led into the water and they're asked a question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they reply, I believe. And they're plunged into the water and brought back up. Then they're asked a second question. 
Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit, and Mary, the Virgin, and crucified under Pontius Pilate, who was dead and buried and rose on the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended in the heavens, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? And again, they would shout, I believe, and they'd be plunged into the water a second time. And then a third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And a third time, I believe, as they're plunged into the water. They would then be anointed with oil again, they'd be blessed, and the newly baptized would be led now into the congregation of believers, where they would share for the first time the Eucharist, before being sent out into the world to do good work and grow in faith. Right? So, so this declaration of faith that the converts had learned and confessed, this creed, it wasn't just something they said or learned. It became then how they interpreted Scripture. So, for, you know, many, many people would, couldn't even read back then. They were illiterate. But when they learned this creed, they had the basic substance of the biblical story, right? They, they knew from the creed that there's a God who creates. There's a God who became incarnate in the world. There's a God who will ultimately redeem the world at the resurrection of the dead, right? In other words, they have a story. This is what God did, this is what God is doing, and this is what God will do. And it would be etched on their minds and hopefully burned on their hearts. Because it wasn't just a pledge. Again, it's not just a reciting what you know. It was, in a sense, a pledge of allegiance that then provided that blueprint for how they would live their lives. And so by taking this Lenten season and this Easter to to learn the Apostles' Creed, we're stepping into a very long line of Christians who've been doing this for thousands of years. Not just, not just Lutherans or Anglicans or Catholics or Episcopalians. I, I reached out to Jamie Pitts, who's a professor of Anabaptist studies at AMBS. He was my professor years ago for Anabaptist history. And I, I asked him, you know, how did the, what about the Anabaptists and the Apostles' Creed? And he pointed out that early Anabaptists, like Balthazar or Hubmeyer, used the Apostles' Creed as a framework for developing their own confession of faith. The Hutterites, if you know, another Anabaptist, old, old Anabaptist group, still use the Apostles' Creed upon their baptism. But is it biblical? Right? Are creeds biblical? I think that was the question uh, that when I was growing up that the question was, and I think it's a fair question. Um, if you look, well, one, I would say, look at the sheets you have. Every line in the Apostles' Creed has a scriptural reference, right? So if you want, you can take the time and you can look back. Where are we getting this? We're not just pulling this stuff. They weren't just pulling this stuff out of nowhere. It comes from um, Scripture. We also should note that the Bible itself has creeds. What uh, Charlotte just read a little bit ago from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is a creed. That is a very short summary, concise summary of the Jewish faith known as the Shema, the first word in Hebrew means here. So in just a couple words, you've got the monotheistic essence of Judaism right there, and it's still today recited by Jews twice a day. Right? But I want you to notice it's not just a statement about who God is. Love the, it's, it, also, it is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the next thing it says is love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. In other words, in that short creed in Deuteronomy, it says, this is who God is. God is one. The Lord is one. And this is how you are to respond to God. You are to love that Lord, that God, with all your heart, soul, and strength. So I am not hoping that we can learn the Apostles' Creed 
so that you and I can at the end of the creed go creation, I believe it, check, trinity, check, resurrection, check, Jesus return, check. That's not the point. Christianity, we should probably remind ourselves, is not a philosophy, right? It's not a set of doctrine. It's a way, it's a way of life. And at the heart of Christianity is not a proposition, but a person. It's a triune God, known to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our faith is, at its core, a relationship with that personal God. But here's the deal. We cannot be in relationship with a God we don't know. Let me give you an example. Imagine you have a friend, and that friend wants to, um, to, to, that friend wants to share who they are with you. They want to tell you where they came from. They want to tell you what they're like, what they don't like. Uh, they want to tell you what's important to them. They want you to get to know them. But every time your friend begins to kind of say something about themselves, you say, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. That's not really important. I'm not interested in the details of your life. I want you to tell me what you want me to do, and I'll tell you what I want you to do. It's kind of very transactional. I think all of us would say that would be a very cold and impersonal friendship, right? That wouldn't even be really a friendship. For many of us, when we hear this word doctrine... We have maybe a negative reaction or our eyes just glaze over. Like, I get it. Like, that's, that's fine. But as Trevor Wax points out, Christians care about the details of doctrine because we love the God those doctrines describe. We love the God those doctrines describe. We don't just learn doctrine or creed so that we can recite them and say, I believe this. We learn that so we can love that God that it describes and so that we can respond to that God because we know who that God is. Another way I've heard kind of doctrine described is, think about it as the rules of a game and spirituality, or maybe as Mennonites, we would maybe say discipleship as the game itself. So rules, um, both are important. Think about trying to play a basketball game with no rules, right? So there's no boundary lines on the court. There's no rules about how you can bring up the ball. It would be total chaos, right? It wouldn't be a game. But imagine just learning the rules of basketball. You know all the rules, all the things, but you don't play. You need both. And that's what doctrine gives us. Doctrine gives us the boundaries, the rules. But the point is to get into the game through discipleship and spirituality, to get onto the way. But my hope is through learning the creed and studying the creed, that's not just for us, but it'll be for other people. Right? So... The Apostles' Creed has, has long been used as a tool for evangelism, and it continues to be today. There's many Christians around the world that use this as part of their catechism. And part of what is so helpful, like I said, about the Apostles' Creed is it's so concise. So imagine somebody comes up to you and says, you know, what's in, what's in the Bible? What are you going to say? You're going to come up with a creed, <laughs> because I can guarantee you, you're not going to read seven, 700,000 words to them. Because that would be the only accurate way you could actually say what's in the Bible, right? What's in the Bible? Well, let's take a seat, right? You have 67 hours, and I'll read you the Bible. There's no way you're going to do that. What are you going to do? You're going to reach for a summary. It may be a good summary. It may not be a good summary. But you're going to reach for a summary. In our tradition, we have something called the Confession of Faith and the Mennonite Perspective. The Confession of Faith is 100 pages. How many, my, my membership class just went through it. How many of you have gone through that recently? How many of you have memorized? Oh, Sarah raised her hand. That's awesome, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. 
100 pages, unlikely that you, are, what's, what, what, tell me the Bible. Okay, well, here we go. You're going to have them lost, all right? It's only 100 pages. The Apostles' Creed is 115 words. Right? That's really helpful. It, it, it streamlines things and gets it concise. And in that 115 words, we have most of the major doctrines of our faith. Again, I mentioned Trinity. Uh, we've got creation, incarnation, the church, forgiveness, the Christian hope, all in just over 100 words. One way I like to think about the Apostles' Creed, or I think it's helpful, is to think about, do you, do you all know what this thing is? It's a little bit ancient. It's an atlas, right? I love maps. I love atlases. You can ask my family. Um, there's no replacement, I think, for the GPS for this. Can I get an amen from anybody out there? Um, so what I love about an atlas and a map is that I can pull it out, and if I'm going to Texas, I can see the major points that I will need to go through, the cities and the interstates that I will take to get to Texas. You can do that on your GPS, GPS kind of on your phone. You can, like, pull back and pull back, but most of us don't do that, right? We just put in the address, and we're gone, and we just listen to this voice very trustingly guide us all the way to where we want to go, which is a little bit disconcerting, but... We won't go there. But an atlas is something different, right? We get to see the whole thing. The Apostles' Creed is somewhat like, think of the Apostles' Creed as a large-scale map, right? Um, it doesn't tell us everything we need to know. You're not going to get everything you need to know in the Apostles' Creed. But it does, everything it tells us is essential. So most, but most weeks at Midway here, we are right, we are in, we are looking at a passage, we look at a short uh, uh, passage from one book of the Bible, and we pretty much stay there, right? Because that's where we're at most week, and that's important because getting into the details is essential for discipleship. One of the critiques that, particularly I think Mennonites have made of the Apostles' Creed is think about how it goes. Uh, born of the Virgin Mary, what happens next? Yeah, crucified under, or suffered under Pontius Pilate. Thank you. Like, and as minutes, we're like, what about Jesus' life? Right? We, we immediately hear that. So you will not get the whole thing in the Apostles' Creed. That is, that is why we, ha- we spend time in the Gospels. We spend time in Jesus' life. But it also helps us. We did this a few years ago on the big picture of the Bible. It's probably been three or four years. I think it's helpful once in a while to stop and then get a big overview of where we're at. The story that we're part of has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end, and it helps to kind of get a 20,000-foot view of where we are in the story, where we've been and where we're going. Um, the other thing is that, the, like, as I mentioned to you, the, the Apostles' Creed was helpful as Christianity spread into the Gentile world as a tool of evangelism. We are... We are in a, um, I mean, you can just look at it statistically. I think in the last 20 or 30 years has been the most significant change um, in, in Christianity in the United States, I think in the history of the country. It's just how many people are not identifying as Christian now. So we are moving into a, very quickly into a post-Christian world. Okay? And the tools that we use for evangelism are going to have to change. So many, many of you, many of us, well, many of you, I'm not quite that old, think about like Billy Graham and revivals. That was a lot of times how you grew up. A lot of what was happening in those was that people were being called back into a faith they already knew. 
Right? That's kind of what revival means, right? You're not trying to give them a new message. You're not trying to convert people. You're trying to remind them what they already know and then bring them back into that. And that's a lot of what these crusades and Billy Graham did. A lot of people already knew the basics of the Christian faith. What they needed was to be brought back into that and excited about it. But something's changed now, right? We cannot assume that, that the average person knows about creation and resurrection and judgment I mean, just say the word resurrection. I never hear people talk about resurrection anymore. We talk about something going off to somewhere. We never talk about resurrection right there in the Apostles' Creed. No, where does the story go? It's going to resurrection when Jesus returns and we rise from the dead. So we cannot assume that our culture knows the basics of this faith. And so this is a very helpful tool for us because I think we're going to have to go back almost to the way it used to be and start saying, this is the story. This is what our story is about. So I don't want us to just learn the creed just for ourselves. The creed is for others. It's for a, to spread the good news of the Christian message. And my hope is that as you dive into the creed, that it'll actually make you want to dive deeper into Scripture. Right? That It's kind of, I've heard it compared to in some ways like... Uh, walking through a cathedral, and there's all these monuments here. The, the, the Apostles' Creed and the other creeds are a testament to the huge amount of thought that's gone into the Christian faith. Like, you could spend a long time in each one of these doctrines. But my hope is that you'll get a little taste of it, and then you'll want to dive deeper into it uh, through Scripture. And my, also, my hope is that you will remember the pledge, if you are baptized, that you made at your baptism. As I mentioned to you, sometimes it takes a silly show like the Mandalorian, to remind us, when I was initiated into the way of Jesus Christ, I was not initiated into a hobby. I was not initiated into a part-time thing. I was initiated into full-out discipleship on the way of the cross, on the way of, in the way of Christ. So my hope is that we can remember we made a serious pledge at our baptism. If you are not initiated into the way of Jesus Christ, I invite you during this series to seriously consider this creed.